Today we're going to talk about the book White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. I bought this book immediately when it was published in 2022, and I read it as soon as it arrived. I love this book a lot, and I'm going to be honest with you, I did not enjoy my experience reading it the first time. And we're not supposed to. It's a book that is meant to hurt, and I don't mean it's meant to wound or cause harm, but it is meant to open us to the ways we hurt others through our participation in white supremacy culture. And if you're a feeling human, then knowing that you've hurt others and learning that you've hurt others through your own words and actions, and knowing that you're still doing it, should hurt. So I thought I'd spend a bit of time sharing my experience reading this book, because I think my experience as an educated white woman with some leadership experience in higher ed will resonate. And my hope is that if you're delaying reading this book because you don't think it applies to you, because you're not racist, or because you feel some uneasiness about being schooled on your whiteness, or even if you've done a lot of DEI work on your campus so you're not really sure you have a lot more to learn, well, I hope this episode will help you get over those hurdles, quit delaying, and read the darn book already. Welcome to episode 48 a white woman reading white women. Hey there, I'm Carol Shabrias, and I walked away from a 25-year career as a higher ed exec so that I could help you. I've had great bosses and shitty ones. I've been a good boss, and to be honest, probably a shitty one. I've learned a lot along the way, and now I share everything I've learned to help you be the kind of leader you've always wanted to follow. Each week, I share practical advice and research-based strategies to help make your job easier. Whether you're a seasoned faculty member, a new department chair, stepping into a new role on the cabinet, or just exploring your options and next steps, I'm here to help you align your professional aspirations, your personal values, and the leadership of your dreams. I'm so excited you're here. Thanks for listening to the Uplift Podcast. Okay, so I gotta say, I feel like this is kind of a soul-bearing episode. I went into this, uh, by which I mean my decision to read this book, feeling pretty good about myself. So first of all, I spent a lot of time reading about leadership in higher ed and also just reading about leadership. And a ton of it is dreck. In fact, when my teenagers see me reading a book, they now ask, are you really reading or are you just reading for work? Yeah, so we're a little snobby. Anyway, so I was looking forward to reading something that wasn't dreck, something that I knew going in would be a good read. Also, I went into this not thinking I'm perfect and not thinking I've achieved anti-racist status. But I did go in knowing I'm smart and I'm caring and I've put in the work on campuses to do this stuff well. And I do strive for anti-racism in all aspects of my personal and professional life. <laughs> you know where this is going, don't you? Anyway, I also went into this feeling like I've had good allies in this space and I've learned a ton from them. So generally, I think the most honest way to describe my mindset going in is this. I went into it as an educated white liberal. And I don't like that. That's really hard to say out loud, mostly because the last time I heard a Black person use that phrase, 
I understood exactly what he meant. And I was like, ah, shit, that's so not flattering. (laughs) Okay, so I also went into this reading experience feeling like I could point to the women who are already doing this kind of work, but they're doing it wrong. So I know a fair number of white women in leadership positions whose anti-racist work is, well, it's not. It's really performative, right? They say the right words in public, but their regular consistent actions, uh, how do you want to say this? There's a disconnect. They reveal their hypocrisy. Or maybe if I were being generous, I could say their regular actions show that they are early in their process and their journey of becoming anti-racists. I could also point to the white women who stridently call out their colleagues for every little thing. Those women, they're doing it wrong too, right? Like their words and tone constantly put folks on the defensive. They are constantly alienating. They end up pushing people away from the work because they're just so unpleasant to be around. I mean, it would be nicer if they just invited folks in, right? And then on the flip side, I can also point to the white women who do the work well. They've done their research. They teach their students. They educate their colleagues. They are kind of exemplars. So I felt like I had this kind of good spectrum of white women doing the work that I could point to. I can tell you who's doing it wrong. I can model who's doing it right. (laughs) So basically what I'm saying is everything I already knew about my own racism. Yeah, one thing for sure I know is how my own anti-racist work measures up against the anti-racist work of other white women. Well, what do you see when you look at the characteristics of white supremacy culture? You see perfectionism, individualism, one right way. Oh my God, like I was 100% there. And that, I got to tell you, that is hard to say out loud. Okay, so back to my reading experience. One thing that's really striking about this book is that it's predominantly written in the second person. And as I was reading, I thought a lot about the rhetorical facts of writing in the second person. As a reader, I did not enjoy being called out by the word you, especially because many times I didn't think I belonged to the group Regina and Sarah were describing. So you know how your mind wanders sometimes when you read? So I was reading and my mind started wandering and I found myself thinking about all the ways I used to work on this with my college writing students. We used to talk about how writing you to the reader commands their attention by making them part of what you're writing. Sometimes that's an effective rhetorical choice, and sometimes it's not. And I used to really enjoy talking about this with young students who were exploring things like voice and authorial intent and style and tone and all that stuff. I didn't enjoy the second-person experience of reading this book. The constant use of second-person made me really uncomfortable. And so what did I do? I processed that discomfort by distancing myself from the second person. And I distanced myself by intellectualizing it, by thinking about it in the abstract, by recalling things I used to do with students who were you know, teenagers at the time, but are full-fledged adults by now. So one of my experiences was I got uncomfortable and I created some distance by relying on my academic training, by thinking about other writers and other encounters I've had with second person writing. And so look again at that list of characteristics of white supremacy culture. Defensiveness, a right to comfort, fear of conflict. (laughs) It was all right there. And, of course, as I was reading, I took issue with some things. 
For example, in the preface, they describe how white women distinguish themselves from racist thugs. We separate ourselves from the real racists, the ones wearing swastikas and MAGA hats and hoods, because we see ourselves as different. And Regina and Cyrus say to us, you are different. You are good. You are a unique human. And so, yeah, so two things happened to me when I read that section. The first was to go, yeah, of course, uh, I am different, right? I am totally different. I am good. I am a good human. And then the second thing is that even while I'm sitting there soothing myself, like, I'm a good human, Carol, don't worry. I recognize what they're doing. They're setting up the individual versus the collective. And I know they're doing that to take me down a notch or to take me down many notches. Because elevating individualism at the expense of the collective is another feature of white supremacy culture. So I'm reading the preface and I'm sitting at this juncture feeling like, yeah, as an individual, I'm pretty certain I'm a decent human being. And also, I see where you're going with this, that my sense of myself as an individual is freaking part of the problem. So I'm only a few pages into the preface and it's already uncomfortable. And then comes the encounter that was really hard. I'm going to read you an extended passage, still from the preface. Your individuality enables you to separate yourself from bad white people, the real racists, the ones wearing swastikas, MAGA hats, and white hoods. Yes, of course, those people are horrific, violent white supremacists. But in your mind, they are not you. They're not even the same species as you. You would never use the N-word or call a bearded brown man a terrorist. You are different. You are good. You are a unique human. But us... We are a nameless, faceless, black and brown lump grouped together. Black people are criminals. Latinos are lazy. Muslims are terrorists. Asians are doormats. Your stereotypes of us are A, obviously not compliments, and B, meant to keep us down in our segmented groups and separate from each of those other segmented groups so that we aren't able to effectively organize against you. We are left fighting one another for the scraps that you white folks throw to us. We are a dark mass. We even look the same to you. You can't and won't be bothered to pronounce our names. Why bother to learn the name and face of the brown woman who serves you your favorite breakfast burrito every Tuesday? Why do Randall and Richard get so annoyed when you get them confused? They both are tall black men with beards in IT. Anyone would confuse them. But you, you are dirty blonde, whereas Beth is strawberry blonde. It's Catherine with a C and not a K. Your eyes are green, but turn blue when it rains. You are unique as fuck. So, okay, I found this passage really irritating, really off-putting. I was like, that isn't even accurate. I don't know anybody who believes that people with black and brown skin are all a dark mass, a nameless, faceless lump. And so I found myself thinking about the people I know, my current neighborhood, the neighborhoods I've lived in before, the schools my kids have gone to, and currently my teenagers are in two different schools. One is a majority Hispanic student population, and the other has a majority Black population. And so I'm thinking of all the ways this description does not fit my lived experience. And even as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about how I live in a very white neighborhood with a great deal of economic comfort. But I'm tamping that part down because, sure, yeah, it's true, but there are all these buts. But my kids go to public schools with lots of racial and economic diversity. I'm surrounded by people who are committed to public education, who buy local, who march in the rallies. All the butts are there. All my little defense mechanisms are there, kicking in. They're kicking hard. So while I'm reading this passage, I'm definitely not asking the question, hey, Carol, are you racist? I'm not, because I'm not. 
I'm not racist. What? They're not talking to me. I can believe that what they're saying is true for lots of Americans. I mean, our family lived in Missouri for a year and we lived in Cincinnati for three years. And I feel like, okay, those are places where these statements are more true. But, you know, not really here in my life now. Not really for me. Which, of course, is exactly the problem. I'm relying on my own individuality and difference. And in fact, I'm relying on my own privilege to negate what Regina and Cyrus are saying. Yeah, sure, ladies, you're right. But not here, not about me. So let me just be super clear about a few things. I do not like admitting this. I don't like that it happened, and I am not enjoying telling you about it. I really wanted to have a different experience reading this book, but I didn't. Even more, I kept having this experience throughout the book, seeing their point and understanding it intellectually, and immediately identifying the ways that what they were saying wasn't quite accurate for me. I read the book, creating a lot of distance between me and the white women they're talking about. I wasn't really denying what they were saying. I just was feeling like, okay, but I'm not quite your audience. And they know that. They know I'm sitting there doing that because they call me out. And I was like, yeah, okay, I see you calling me out, but, but even now I'm going to distance myself from it. So here's what they say. If your reactions to the pages you've read so far mirror the work we do with white women in real life, we imagine you've likely rolled your eyes, closed and reopened the book, maybe even called your token friend of color for affirmation that you are, in fact, not racist. And I'm like, I'm not sitting here rolling my eyes. I'm not crying. I'm not asking black people to make me feel better. I am so not your audience. <sighs> Which is when they say the thing that's really important. They say this to me. The pain and hurt and discomfort are not ancillary to anti-racism work. They are the guts of it. Without them, change simply does not happen. Sitting in this discomfort, a feeling you likely have never endured before, is ultimately what will break these systems of oppression. And that's it. Like, that was it in a nutshell for me. My intellect, my academic training, my skill at analyzing the written word, my privilege. I'm using them all as tools to protect myself from discomfort. I'm comfortable using the tools I gained earning my PhD. I'm comfortable knowing that black and brown people are in my social and professional circles and networks. I'm comfortable having my kids in public schools where they are a racial minority. Hell, I went to a public school like that. I am very comfortable. And when that comfort is threatened, I'm obviously pretty darn good at restoring it. I've reread their preface a few times, and honestly, each time I go through the same freaking thing, I have the same experience every time I'm like, not me. Or as Jane said in last week's episode, I would never, I would never, I would never, not me, and I would never. But that doesn't make the book wrong. And even if I would never, which obviously is questionable, but let's just go with it, even if... I would never. There's a flip side to I would never say anything racist, which is, do I always interrupt and intervene when I see it? Not do I march, not do I shop at businesses owned by black women, but honestly, do I look for racism everywhere and do everything I can always to interrupt it? No, of course I don't. <laughs> that would be exhausting, which is the freaking point. It's why the book is so damn powerful. It shows me it will not let me turn away from the truth. It is relentless in its illustration 
of the ways I choose comfort over exhaustion. And it makes me face the truth that I don't extend that same opportunity to my colleagues of color who quite literally don't have that choice to make because going to work by itself is exhausting. And I don't take every single opportunity to undo the structures that are so exhausting to them. And what am I describing here? I'm describing discomfort with being uncomfortable. I'm describing intellectual distancing, a way of not engaging my heart and my body. I'm describing denial and defensiveness. Even if I'm not crying or angry, I'm still moving into protective mode. I'm describing perfectionist tendencies. I'm describing the belief that there's one right way to do this work. (laughs) I'm describing all those freaking characteristics of white supremacy culture. I'm literally experiencing them every time I read this book. I had to look really hard in that mirror. I do not like that mirror. And I did not go into this reading experience really seeing that that mirror was even being held up for me. But it is. And this is why I believe we'll benefit from reading this book in intentional community with other white women. So if I read this book alone, I sit in my office, I play some music, I have the sunlight coming in, I have a cup of tea, I can put up all my walls, I can explain away everything that makes me uncomfortable, and then it's super easy for me to return to my life as it was before I read the book. But if we read this book and discuss it in community, that naturally helps break down the defensiveness, the intellectualizing, the individual not-me mode that is easy and natural to slide into when we read it in isolation. We all have individual work to do. I clearly have a lot to do. I just described a tiny bit of it to you. But the power of breaking systems and structures comes from working in community. When I read this book the first time, it showed me that I am not the person I want to be. And I didn't see it because the book told me. I mean, the book does tell me. But my responses to being told were what was really informative to me. How I resisted the book showed me how complicit I am and how much work I have to do. (sighs) Okay, so like I have not necessarily enjoyed recording this episode, but I hope that sharing my experience with you bolsters your courage a bit as you continue your anti-racist work and consider reading this book. I hope what I've shared helps you decide to read the book to engage with its concepts, and to take that hard freaking look in that kind of ugly mirror. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. And it's better. Not easier, but better if we do it together. I wanted to share all this with you for two reasons. One is because I really hope you will come join Jane Summers and me as we talk about this book in community with other white women. And you can learn more about that at the website, theclariogroup.com forward slash white women's work, all one word. Our challenge for the month of May starts this coming Friday, May 5th. So if you're listening to this podcast the week it drops, it's coming up in a day or two. But even if you're not joining a challenge, like if you're listening to this after the week it drops and we're not running the challenge, or for whatever reason the challenge doesn't appeal, if you're a white woman listening, I still want you to read the book. I think as white women, especially white women who are leading in some capacity, leading at any level at colleges and universities, we have a responsibility. As white women in leadership positions, we often have more power than we believe we have. 
If you're in a leadership position, power is attributed to you whether you feel you have it or not. And if you're a white woman in leadership, that's layered obviously with gendered expectations, but it's super intersectional. And it's important that we take the ways our race is invisible to us and natural to us and interrogate it and dismantle it. And that's work we can do together. Thanks for joining me in it. Meanwhile, thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of The Uplift, the podcast dedicated to elevating and amplifying women's leadership in higher education. Take a moment to follow. You can find me over on Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Spotify, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also find all previous episodes with transcript, show notes, and links at my website, www.theclariogroup.com. And hey, I see you with your phone open. Come connect with me on social. You can follow the Clario Group on LinkedIn or Facebook. You can also just follow me and you'll see all the Clario Group content. And once you've followed, please drop me a DM to say hi. I'd like to know you're there. All right, that's it. I will see you next week, same time, same place for the next episode of The Uplift. Bye for now. 